Reflections on the Bible Creation, Fall, and Sacrifice by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 5 Let me begin by quoting the Russian philosopher Vladimir Solovyov. Solovyov, by the way, was a friend of Dostoevsky's. He says, quote, It is difficult for me to describe how pleased I am when I see an open enemy of Christianity. In nearly every one of them, I am almost inclined to see a future St. Paul, while every Christian zealot seems to me to be a potential Judas, the traitor himself. I just thought of that because uh, I wanted to begin the, our discussion of the Passion by going back to Virginia Woolf's The Waves, and Virginia Woolf was uh, an agnostic. I wouldn't say she was an open enemy of Christianity, but certainly uh, she didn't embrace it. But nevertheless, her figure, uh, the figure of uh, Bernard in her novel, who is, I think, the novelist, who is Virginia Woolf herself, he says in there, you'll remember I talked about this quite a bit, he says, uh, I'm always taking notes, I'm always making phrases, I'm always preparing for the next story, I'm writing thousands of stories, but I'm always distracted. And he says, and when I'm distracted, I at once make up a story and so obliterate the angles of the crucifix. I have made up thousands of stories. I have filled innumerable notebooks with phrases to be used when I have found the true story, the one story to which all the phrases refer, but I have never yet found that story. Well, this, it's one of these passages where we are told that the search is on for a story. It's never been found, and at the same time we're told that the search itself has the effect of obliterating the angles of the crucifix. So that the text both tells us that there is no story and tells us what the story is. Um, so I think there's a real revelation there. What is the, what is the central story or what contemporary thinkers call the meta-narrative? in our world. And I think it's the story of the crisis, death, and resolution that is in all, as Rene said when he was here, that is in all myths and is in all narratives. And I think the passion story in the Gospels is the revelation of that process in its true form. So I want to turn to that story and look at it. We turn to it all the time and uh, the, the church turns to it daily in a way and then of course annually in the liturgical cycle and we're nearing the nearing Holy Week so that's the time and I always been to that liturgical cycle so I wanted to do it again this year. And I'm pretty much going to stick with the Gospel of Mark. And usually when I do this, I, I do it with the Gospel of John. But I want to stick with the Gospel of Mark mo mostly today. And I'm going to begin with chapter 14 of Mark. And not next week, but two weeks from today, I'm going to, uh, I want to take a look at 13, chapter 13 of Mark, which is the apocalyptic chapter and then relate that to some things that are happening in our world today. But it, chapter 14 begins this way. It was two days before Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by some trick and have him put to death. It's very abrupt. You know, Mark is a very short gospel, and it moves very quickly. Things happen very quickly, and this is very abrupt. It gives us the time in terms of the liturgy and the Passover, which is the central uh, event. And then it tells us the opponents of Jesus are, are in place. They're always in place. Mark always lines them up. And here it's chief priests and scribes. And they want to arrest Jesus and put him to death. The chief priests and scribes say to one another, we must not do this during the festival because 
Passover time, everybody comes to Jerusalem. There's huge crowds. We must not do it during the festivities, for there will be a disturbance among the people. So again, we're alerted to the fact that it's really the crowd that's in control here and that the titular leaders of the crowd are in fact recognized, as all political leaders always do, if, they, if they're honest with themselves, that it's really the crowd that's in control. So, but in any event, there's a kind of abrupt, dramatic thing, very much like when Jesus came to Jerusalem and went right to the temple. Suddenly, we get notice that it's nearing Passover time. The forces arrayed against Jesus are ready to, to arrest him and kill him. They're a little bit wary of the crowds, but still the scene is set for something very dramatic to happen, and suddenly Mark does exactly what he did before. He interrupts the whole process, frustrates our expectation that something dramatic is going to happen right then, and takes us to another scene. Remember when he, when he introduced Jerusalem and the temple? He had Jesus walk right into the temple, look around, decide it was late, leave town. Nothing happened, and exactly the same kind of expectation and then uh, deflection happens here so the next verse is jesus was at bethany in the house of simon the leper (coughs) he was at dinner so we forget all that we go back uh, to the outskirts he was at dinner when a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment pure nard she broke the jar and poured poured the ointment on his head Some who were there said to one another indignantly, Why this waste of ointment? Ointment like this could have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were angry with her. And Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why are you upsetting her? What she has done for me is one of the good works. You have the poor with you always, and you can be kind to them whenever you wish but you will not always have me. She has done what was in her power to do. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. I tell you solemnly, whenever throughout the world the good news is proclaimed, what she has done will be told also in remembrance of her. Okay, now I want to go back over this. I think this is one of the most important parts of the story. Everything is here. Everything is here. We pass over it to get to the the Passion story, but everything is here, both what has preceded it in the gospel and what's coming after. There are a number of things that I want to point out. Uh, First is, notice that this woman does this spontaneously and then becomes the object of scorn by the other people. By the way, there is a kind th- th- these Jesus disciples have uh, a concern for the poor, and th- people had a concern for the poor long before Jesus arrived. But there is a kind of there's something in this story that's equivalent to the contemporary controversy about multiculturalism, and that is that they say t- the implication is. We shouldn't be spending this much time and energy on this figure, namely Jesus. We should simply be doing the good works, which is feeding the poor, clothing the naked, and so on and so forth, what we used to call the corporal works of mercy. That's what we should be about. And that was a very powerful part of the, of, has always been, of Christianity and certainly of the early church. So we shouldn't be, really the complaint is that we shouldn't be focusing time, energy, resources on this figure, but we should be doing what he taught, taught us to do in the world. But then the question is, of course, this determination to do that in the world, where does it come from? Uh, it, Jesus is, is, if you will, the, the goose that laid the golden egg of good works. So they now have this tremendous determination to do good works because, precisely because, they are constantly in touch with his example in that regard. So if they were to decide, well, let's not focus so much of our attention on him and simply go out and do these good works, they would be humanist. And the third generation would 
began to lose interest in doing good works. I'm not, I mean, I'm just saying. But, uh, and uh, the reason I say it corresponds to the controversy over multiculturalism is because the, what's at the heart of multiculturalism is the determination not to exclude anybody. And I would say that determination is born of the biblical revelation about the, the preference for and the empathy for the victim. And so if, and, and in the multiculturalism debate, it's often, it's often the, the tradition itself, the tradition that gave rise to multiculturalism that's excluded in the name of ending exclusivity and so on. Well, you see what I'm saying? That's not the most important part of this story, but it, 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 it interests me because it's there. Now, notice Jesus defends her he comes to her age. She has done this spontaneously, and they're angry with her. And so we shouldn't miss the fact that his response is in defense of the victim. That is to say, the one castigated by, the, by all the others. And it's very explicit. It says, they were angry with her. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you upsetting her? In other words, he does what he does. He comes to the defense. He does the paraclete work, which is to come to the defense of those that are accused. But really the heart of this is something more dramatic. At the very heart, literally at the mi- in the middle of Mark's gospel, is the... the events at Caesarea Philippi when the disciples when Jesus asked the disciples what does everybody say about me who do they say that I am and they give him several options people are talking in various ways then he says whom do you say that I am and Peter answered you are the Messiah the Christ the son of the living God and that's a turning point you see because to use a really stupid metaphor you know the little things you stick in turkeys at Thanksgiving time and they pop out when they're done well suddenly Peter is done he has recognized the significance of Jesus' life the messianic meaning of Jesus' life now when I say this I'm not making distinction between what the Markan church knew and what what the Markan church said and what Jesus said I'm not interested in that I'm just reading the text and the text said at that point Peter got it he seems to have gotten it he says yes you are the Messiah the word Messiah means the anointed one. Now, as soon as he says you are the Messiah, Jesus says two things in Mark. He says, first of all, don't tell anybody. There's a kind of messianic secret in Mark. And secondly, he says, the Son of Man must suffer and die. And at that, Peter, who seems to have just arrived at, the, at his full understanding, at that, Peter takes Jesus aside and the Greek word means he muzzles him he stifles him in other words he takes him aside and tries to silence what he just said about his own suffering and death the idea that that the Messiah would have to die at the hands of the authorities and the mob is unthinkable unthinkable and Peter can't think it. And so he tries to stifle this. He has just recognized the messianic meaning of Jesus' life, but, but still has in his head the old ideas of the Messiah, the, the victorious one. And as you know, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Your ways are not God's ways, and so on. So it's a very dramatic moment where where Jesus is both recognized as Messiah and misrecognized because the the understanding of of the messianic role is uh is not there exactly the same way in this story the woman comes in and she pours ointment the word is chrism that's to say the stuff that anoints the anointed one So she anoints the anointed one. Messiah means anointed one. Christ means anointed one. Means the one anointed with chrism. 
she comes in in an act of spontaneous devotion. She anoints him. And immediately they start complaining about the fact that uh, too, too many resources are being focused on this figure when we could be helping uh, others. What Jesus does is that he accepts the anointment and then reinterprets it, exactly what he did at Caesarea Philippi. He then says, they're complaining to her because they're saying, they don't use the word, but Jesus uses the word. They say, look, we should be using this money to do good works, not to just not to just lavish these things uh, on our leader. And Jesus reinterprets her act of anointing and says she is, she is in fact doing a good work because one of the good works, even in the Christian idea of corporal works of mercy, is the, to bury the dead. One of the good works was to anoint the body of the dead. So, she has done what looks on the surface of it like, you know, kings were anointed, priests were anointed. Uh, anointing was a, an ordination ritual. And the Messiah was to be the anointed one. She's done the messianic uh, gesture towards Jesus and he reinterprets it and says, she's anointed my body for burial. And it's exactly, do you see what I'm saying? It's exactly what happens at Caesarea Philippi. Now, there's another aspect of this which comes in, which parallels another story in, in John. The Gospel of John begins with, or the first episode, dramatic episode in the Gospel of John's uh, wedding feast at Cana. And there are six stone jars which are used for ritual washings. And they are empty. And this is part of the Johannine symbolism of the of the spiritual bankruptcy of the of the Jewish tradition at the time. So the jars, which are supposed to be used for these elaborate purification rituals uh, in daily and and uh, liturgical Jewish life, are empty, meaning the, the the cult is barren. And Jesus has them filled with water, turns them into the wine of celebration. And so that's John's way of talking about something new breaking in. Well, I think there's another version of that here. These are alabaster jars. This, the woman brings in an alabaster jar of, of chrism, and she breaks the jar. These jars would have little narrow necks. And uh, to break the jar, to pour the, the expensive chrism on the head of Jesus, is a dramatic once and for all it's... And you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube kind of kind of act. And I think it has the same symbolism for Mark as, as the, Can- uh, the wedding feast that Cana has for John. It's, drama- it's all of Israel's chrism. All of that enormous wealth of messianic expectation is what the chrism is. And this woman... And it's a woman, by the way. Notice it's a woman. It's always a woman in Mark. The, the, the disciples in Mark are, are, without exception, stupid. They never get it. Only the women. And the women are marginalized because in the society of the time, they were social non-entities. You see, they didn't count. And so it's a woman who comes in and does this dramatic thing. And Jesus reinterprets it. And so at the end of the story, what we now know, which we didn't know at the beginning of the story, is that Jesus is the anointed one, meaning he's the Messiah, the Christ, and that, that the Christ has to be the victim. He's again referred to his suffering and death. It has to be that way. The Messiah has come into the world in order to die at the center of that process that has been generating culture and delusion since the foundation of the world. And Jesus shows up and it says he agreed to hand Jesus over. But that's all we, we have. In John's gospel, by the way, it says that Satan entered him. Satan means the accuser. 
And I'll mention only in passing something happens right after that, which is the first day of unleavened bread when the Passover lamb was sacrificed. They asked Jesus, where should we eat Passover meal? And just as he did when he, when he fetched the, the donkey to ride into Jerusalem, he says, go into a town and you will see a man carrying a pitcher of water and follow him and, and uh, tell the owner of the house he enters that the master wants a room and so on and so forth. And this is enigmatic, but I would say one thing that we might notice here is that men didn't carry pitchers of water. Women carried pitchers of water. That was not a man's job. It would, it would be demeaning for a man in Jesus' time to be carrying a pitcher of water. And uh, so I don't know what to make of that, but I think it's part of the sort of atmosphere of Mark's gospel. The women get it. Here, the role is always the role of the reverse. The role is reversed. It's always a much humbler uh, role than one thinks at the beginning and so on. And I think there's a tiny echo of some of that here, that it's, it, that it's, the man, it's where, where you find a man doing this, what would have been regarded by men as a demeaning task. That's where we'll have Passover. And so they gather... Uh, and at table, he says, one of, you, one of you will betray me. Mark always says, by the way, when Mark mentions Judas, he always says, Judas, comma, one of the twelve. It's his way of rubbing it in. He just never lets the, the disciples off the hook. He shows that they never get it. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die, walking out in front of the disciples, and they're back there talking about who's what position they're going to have in the kingdom. They just don't get it. They never get it. So he says, one of you is about to betray me, one of you eating with me now. And they say to him, one after another, they say, not I, surely. In other words, they're saying, is it me? And it seems funny. You think, why would that, is, is that a genuine question? I think it's a genuine question. They're saying, is it, am I the one that's going to turn you in, betray you? And they say it one after another. So there is a mimetic process going on here, but it's, it's sequential. And there's another one to come in a little while that, that isn't. But I think there's something very healthy about this response, particularly when we compare it to Peter's, which I will in just a few minutes. So just hold that in your, in your mind, if you will, for a second. He says, one of you will betray me, and they all begin to think, I wonder if it's going to be me. And I think that's so valid, because if we were to say, well, I know myself, and I know it's not going to be me, we wouldn't know what Mark knows about us. See? So then the Eucharist, and if things were in the right order, we'd spend the next six weeks on the Eucharist and not uh, the next you know, two or three minutes. Uh, but it's one of those great mysteries that's too, it's, I think, beyond me really to deal with very well. And so I just say a word or two about it. Uh, Jesus takes bread, blesses it, says, this is my body. Take it and eat of it. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which would be poured out for many. Uh, and so on. You know, the question of what, how the Eucharist fits into things is, is a question we're probably not in a position to answer. Uh, but it has been the virtual unanimous judgment of the Christian movement that it is central. And I would say this about it, not trying to put it into a box, but just to add this to the other things that could be said about it. And that is that Something in this text knows something. Now, I don't know how to say that. Is it the evangelist? Is it Jesus? Is it the Word of God in the text? Is it the Holy Spirit uh, hovering over the text? I don't know how to say this, except this text knows, or Jesus knows, or the evangelist knows, or the church knows, or whatever. But this text knows that the sacrificial system is about to be destroyed. 
and it expresses it in unmistakable terms at, the, at Jesus' death. I shouldn't say it's about to be destroyed. I should say it's about to be fatally compromised. That the world will have to, that the sacrificial system will begin to lose its force as a result of what's about to happen to Jesus. And the question will be how to live without it. And we humans have always and still do, to some degree, build our sense of self and our sense of social solidarity from sacrificial events. Jefferson says the tree of liberty has to be periodically watered with the blood of patriots and tyrants. We live in a world where we, where we generate our sense of who we are and, and what community we are in those terms. There's, a, there's something about the Eucharist that has definite sacrificial overtones, but at the heart of it, it is not that at all. It's a way of moving beyond sacrifice and at the same time retaining enough of the sacrificial form for it to actually take the place of sacrifice. So if we are still people who, who come together psychologically and socially by tearing flesh and shedding blood, Jesus gives us in bread and wine his body and his blood so that the community that comes together in his name will have another central event, a sacrament, which has enough of the sacrificial overtones to it to be relevant to the, to the disease that it's, that it's destined to cure. If you see what I'm saying? The, 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 uh, the cure has to be, to some extent, homeopathic. It has to have a, it has to have a, a touch of the disease that it's curing. And I think the Eucharist is that. Okay, so then we go, the, Mark takes us then to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus says to them all, all his disciples, you will all lose faith in me. For the scripture says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's from Zechariah. However, after my resurrection, I shall go before you to Galilee. So he's describing a scattering and then a coming back together after uh, his resurrection. Now, the historical Jesus is not very likely to have predicted his resurrection. Uh, but the church is talking this way. The Mark and church is talking this way. He says, you will lose faith, but the term is scandal. scandal. You will be scandalized by me, which means a stumbling block. And you will be scattered. To be scandalized is to be caught up in a social gestalt and to, to, and to lose your orientation except to be part of this gestalt. It's to be caught up in something. And it could be caught up in something that's just with your, your rival or your, your own personal dynamic or it could be caught up in some larger social event. But he says, you will be scandalized and you will all desert me. Now, remember at, at table he had said, one of you will betray me. And they said, am I the one? Am I the one? They all went around, am I the one? Am I the one? Well, here he says, you will all desert me. And Peter says the opposite. He says, even if they all lose faith. I think it's interesting, by the way, that the, that the translator translates the to be scandalized lose to, as to lose faith. So the opposite of having faith is to be scandalized. Faith is that which keeps us from being scandalized. I think that's pretty good. I think that's right. So Peter says, even if they all are scandalized and lose faith in you, I will not be. Not me. He exempts himself from what Jesus has just said. He says, you have misunderstood you have underestimated the depth of my devotion. 
And Jesus says to him, I tell you solemnly, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will have disowned me three times. But Peter repeated still more earnestly, if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. So he comes right back and, no, not me. I'm going to stick there with you. And then it gets a little funny. Because then it says, they all said the same thing. Now, what is that they're saying? Peter has said, they may get scandalized and flee. I won't. So he's privileged himself. He says, I'm not like them. And Jesus has told him, well, yes, you are. No, he said, I'm not like them. And then it says, they all said the same thing. Well, what would they be saying? The same thing would be for them to say, they may leave you, but I won't. So now you have everybody in unison saying, they may leave you, but I won't. They're going to, in other words, they're declaring their uniqueness in unison. They're declaring their immunity to mimesis in unison. You see, the, the, if you were to stage this, it could be really funny. You could do a really funny thing. It's the kind of thing that they should have probably done in Jesus Christ's Superstar, which is a marvelous film. But you could really do something funny here. When, when I don't know if Peter knows it, but certainly Mark knows it, that when Peter says, I won't be scandalized, he's saying, I am immune to the mimetic power of the crowd. That's what he's saying. So they may fall under the mimetic influence of the crowd, but I will not. He immediately steps into scandal. In other words, Jesus says, you will all be scandalized, and Peter is scandalized by that remark. He says, wait a minute. I won't be scandalized. Just like a kid when you say, you know, you can't have a piece of candy. And they say, I am going to have a piece of candy. So he's scandalized by Jesus' revelation of the universal scandal. And our and our you know, penchant for falling into it. And so he says, I won't. Well, I'm, I'm doing this too much, but the, the, the funny thing is that they're all declaring their immunity from mimetic influence unanimously, in unison, showing that they have fallen completely into it. They're ripe already for what's about to happen. Okay, so they go to Gethsemane, if there's anything in the gospel that shows that the gospel is not myth, it's Gethsemane. It's unbelievable. You see, they go to Gethsemane and uh, Jesus says to his disciples, you stay here while I go pray. And he takes three, Peter, James, and John. And they follow him a little way. And then he says, and then it says, a sudden fear came on him, a great distress. My soul is sorrowful to the point of death. Wait here, keep awake, and he goes even further, off to pray. Throws himself on the ground, prays that this hour might pass. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible. Take this cup from me, but let it be as you, not I, would have it. This is really amazing, you see. Unbelievable. If this were not, we, we often, historical Christianity has often gone about its business as though this passage didn't exist. And if it didn't exist, we wouldn't miss it. We wouldn't miss it. And often we think of the story and tell the story without really fully feeling or understanding the meaning of this event. This shows for sure that the Gospels are not another sacred text. They're not another uh, myth of the of the sacred hero you see he doesn't want to die he doesn't want to die and he comes back in there asleep and he says the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak now this should be you know they're asleep and so on we should remember what mark is talking about here when he says spirit is willing and flesh is weak uh, he's not talking about being sleepy <laughs> he's saying 
You know, if he had come back, I mean, Mark is talking about something much more profound. And when, Mark, when Paul, you know, talks about the flesh, he's not talking about these little weaknesses that we associate with flesh. And he's certainly not talking about sexuality. You see, what does, what's the flesh is weak? What's, what's weak is, well, if you think it's just they're tired, imagine... This is silly, really. But imagine that he comes back and they've gone off to relieve themselves. Do you think he would say the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak? If It would apply in the same way that it would if you're talking about being sleepy. He's not talking about being sleepy. What makes the flesh weak is this propensity to fall under the power of the, the gravitational power of the accusing mob and not to understand that the Messiah has to be outside that crowd as its appointed victim. And this is something they, they, can't, they can't comprehend. So Hammerton Kelly again says, They have not understood that Jesus is no sacred hero, no religious virtuoso, and no saint. He is simply a victim of violence in need of moral support. This is something Christians haven't haven't felt. You see. And Simone Weil says someplace, she says, you know, the early Christians may have gone into the marched into the Colosseum to their death singing joyfully. But Christ didn't do that. He had no consolation. The early martyrs, the martyr, Christian martyrs, have often had the consolation because they're, they're going to their martyrdom after the cross. But Jesus had none of that. And so you get a figure here. If the Gospels were trying to make some kind of a uh, great transcendent figure, which John's gospel comes very close to making, although I don't think he does. Um, and the church, you know, the the sort of triumphant Christ that reigned over the church in some of its middle years. If the gospel was trying to do that, it certainly wouldn't have put this in here. And it put it in there because it was true. They put it in there because it happened. He didn't want to die. Okay, so then the, 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 the arresting crowd shows up carrying swords and clubs with Judas at their head sent by the chief priests, scribes, and elders. Mark always makes sure that the authorities are in the background. So you have everything you need. You have the mob, you have the accusers, and you have the legitimizing authorities behind them. And Judas kisses Jesus, so that the act that should be the act of uh, devotion becomes the act of betrayal. And Jesus does not resist. His consent to what's going on is so profound in Mark's gospel that when uh, somebody pulls out a sword, a, uh, a bystander pulls out a sword and cuts off the high priest's servant's ear, and later in the later Gospels, we find out, well, it was Peter who did it, and then we find out more about it and so on. But here in Mark's Gospel, all we have is the sword and, and the act of violence. In this Gospel, Jesus doesn't even reprimand the man with the sword. He simply ignores it. And he speaks to his accusers. And he says, am I an insurrectionist, a brigand, an outlaw, that you should come with swords and clubs? I've been teaching in the temple. You could have arrested me there. But he says, this is all happening according to Scripture. And this, at this, all his disciples flee. And I think we have to read this. I think what Mark is saying to his community is that it was, it was the sudden realization that Jesus was not going to respond to his attackers in any way, either uh, physically or with, or with some dazzling power. He wasn't going to give this sermon that was going to open their hearts and change everything. He wasn't going to, 
to suddenly reveal some enormous divine power that would cower them and awe them and make them realize that he's the Messiah. He wasn't going to do that. And they, the next verse says, they all deserted him and ran away. And then you have this curious thing that's only in Mark. The passage goes like this. A young man who followed him, so there was one who doesn't run away. A young man who followed him had nothing on but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the cloth in their hands and ran away naked. It's this strange little passage. And I would like to dwell on it just for a second before going on. And what I want to do is, is, a, is a kind of midrash on this. A midrash is an is a, is a old Jewish form of commentary, which is not exactly exegesis and not exactly homiletics or something, but it's a way of, of, uh, of trying to get at the heart of the text. And since nobody that I've read knows what to do with this passage, uh, it's, to me it has the smell of, of, a, of a ritual initiation. As though there was something, this had this, this, there was some kind of initiation in Mark's community that may have involved something like this. I have no idea. There's all kinds of speculation on it. But here's how I would interpret it there is one who tries to follow Jesus, and he's the one who wears linen cloth. Linen cloth, by the way, is associated with ritual purity. For example, just to give a background of this, in the scapegoat ritual in Leviticus 16, when the scapegoat ritual is devised, you have the following passages. Yahweh speaking to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother... By the way, the scapegoat ritual is devised because two of Aaron's sons were killed in a ritual that got out of hand. And instead of sacrificing the animal, they sacrificed the two priests. So now they're going to have... a scapegoat ritual which will take will drain away some of this sacrificial appetite and at the same time the scapegoat ritual is going to reinforce the protections of the priest the priest in Leviticus are always they wear the 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 priestly garb is is like the kind of those kind of yellow suits that people put on to go into Chernobyl I mean that's that's what the priestly garb is designed to do to to ward off to keep the, the priest from being contaminated by the sacred and therefore ending up dead. And so in this ritual, uh, Yahweh says to, to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother that he must not enter the sanctuary beyond the veil in front of the throne of mercy that is over the ark whenever he chooses. He may die if he does so. In other words, you can't. Now let's keep this in mind at the death of Jesus. He is not to enter into the Holy of Holies, beyond the veil. That veil is there for a reason. And you don't remove it cavalierly. So if he, And he might die if he enters uh, at the wrong moment. This is how he must enter the sanctuary. With a young bull for sacrifice for sin and a ram for a holocaust. He is to put on a tunic of consecrated linen, wear linen on his body, a linen girdle around his waist, and a linen turban on his head. These are the sacred vestments he must put on after washing himself with water. Well, I don't think there's any literal connection with what Mark is doing here, but there is a symbolic connection. Here's, here, this, this would be my midrash. There's one who follows Jesus after everybody has, has fled, and it is the one who is posing as innocent. And in this sense, I think it's all Christians. Because once you're exposed to the gospel and, you, and, uh, and, and enough to, to be drawn to it, you realize that the victim is innocent. And once you realize the victim is innocent, you begin to, you begin to pose as innocent yourself. The, the, the stance of innocence, innocentness that I think is represented by the linen is, is, uh, is, is typical of of uh, Christianity at a certain naive level. Oh, I'll follow him simply by being innocent. I can do it. I'm going to be innocent. 
He thinks he can, he can follow Jesus just by remaining innocent. See? You know what the, Paul wrote? Well, we're going to talk about the letter to the Romans here in a few weeks. Paul's letter to the Romans is, is addressed to precisely people like this who think that they can achieve some kind of righteousness, which is the, which is the Christian version of ritual purity, and remain followers of Christ by staying inside that righteousness. And all they need in order to have that delusion shattered is for an angry mob to show up and immediately snatch away that little fetish, which is their innocence. And so the, for me, the, the linen robe is, is the fetish of innocence that the, that the Christian disciple hangs on to for 30 seconds longer than the rest of them, just long enough for the crowd to reach out and grab him. And then he's gone, but now he's naked. In a way, he's in a better position to understand everything now than all the others because he stayed 30 seconds longer. Okay, so they lead Jesus to the high priest, and again, Mark lines up everybody. The high priest, the chief priest, the elders, the scribes are all there, and Peter followed him at a distance. And Peter is the church, always in us, I should say. When I say church, I mean us. Following Jesus at a distance, not, not being able to walk away and not being able to follow him closely following him at a distance. And he goes there and begins to warm himself by a fire. Now, this warming by the fire is not as explicit as it is in the Gospel of John, uh, but it's a powerful metaphor for, G for Peter affiliating himself with the crowd, the, 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 the victimizing community, the functionaries in the high priest court who are warming themselves by a fire. He becomes part of that group. So what we have to we have to read the gospels now structurally. You see what I'm saying? We have to see the structure here. Diagram it. You see what I mean? You almost have to diagram it. Watch the movement, watch the social flow, watch the movement here. And on the inside you have Jesus in the middle, standing in front of his primary accuser, surrounded by his secondary accusers. And on the outside, you have Peter in a circle of lesser functionaries in that same system warming themselves by a fire. And in, inside, they're warming themselves by a fire too. Inside, the fire is the victim who's being accused. That's the warmth of, that's generated from that circle inside. And so that structurally, there's something very revealing and so you have two things going on t simultaneously. The trial of, of Peter by the lesser functionaries and the trial of Jesus by the high priest and the, and the greater functionary. And uh, Jesus is condemned, but by our standards acquitted. Peter is, a, is acquitted, or at least he's let off, but by our standards condemns himself. So they're parallel trials. Inside, they're trying to cook up some kind of evidence against Jesus and they're happy to use false evidence if they can get some to stick. And someone says, we heard him say he would destroy the temple made with human hands and raise it up again in three days, a, a temple not made by human hands. But even this, on this point, their evidence was conflicting. So the high priest stood up and said, what is the evidence these men are bringing against you? But Jesus was silent and made no answer. I think the silence of Jesus here is important because there comes a, a point in the, in the sacrificial momentum when any, counter, any countering of the accusation will either inflame the accusatory power just be just feed the fires of the sacrificial fires or it will only be successful if it redirects the sacrificial pointer we all learn this in the second grade when the taunting comes our way 
the obvious thing to do is either to turn it back onto the taunter or uh, easy, even easier thing is to turn it onto somebody else. There you, the idea of absorb it won't, it, 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 it won't go away. The idea of absorbing it is too much for second graders or f- for that matter, any of us. And the only alternative is either to turn it back on the accusers or to turn it towards somebody else. To scapegoat somebody else, Eve said no, Adam said no, Eve did it, Eve said no, the serpent did it. Or to turn it on to the accuser. To turn it back on the accuser is just to create a scandal. So if Jesus had said, well, let me tell you, Mr. High Priest, let me tell you some things about you. And then started into a laundry list of what's wrong with the high priest. You know where he would have been? He would have been just where John was when he when he fell into the rat's nest of Herod's court. You see? John and Herod got into a food fight, and John lost his head, and it didn't save the world. <laughs> you see what I mean? It didn't save the world because it was too much scandal. And so Jesus remained silent. And I think this is tremendous. Now, he only breaks his silence in, John, in Mark's gospel at one point, and that's when the high priest puts the second question to him, are you the Christ? And he says, I am. And at this, the high priest, because this is, this is I was going to say crucial. You know, the word crucial means cross. So, you, so quite literally, this is crucial. The Christ and the the cross and the crucified one has to be recognized as the Christ. And the Christ has to be recognized as the crucified one. And you get this, in the Mark and Jesus, you get this absolute determination. When does he break his silence? Only then. Are you the Christ? There's one thing he can't leave uh, to speculation. And that is, the Christic identity of the crucified one is absolutely central. So are you the Christ? Yes. At this, the high priest tore his robes. What need we of witnesses now, he said. You have heard the blasphemy. What is your finding? And they all gave their verdict. He deserved to die. This happened so quickly. There's a lot of hemming and hawing. Everybody's well. What are, what are the accusations? And let's see. Let's have an in, you know an inquest or an inquiry and find out. Let's ask some more questions. Anybody? Do I hear a second? You know, does anybody have any other? It's just not going anywhere. And the priest says, "Are you Christ?" And he says, "I am." And the priest does this very dramatic thing. He tears his robes, which is associated in in many texts with with tremendous grief but it's also associated with outrage and I would like to focus a little bit on this what the priest does in tearing the robes because I think it's a ritual gesture that that sets on fire the social scene it's as though the, the, the priest is there I don't know this is weird that I would be thinking of this right now but I'm, I'm thinking of that the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, you know. When the prophets of Baal try to, they try to get the fire to consume their sacrifice and they can't get it going, you know. And then Elijah comes along and he dumps water on his sacrifice and it bursts into flame anyway. Well, here's the sacrificial priest, the high priest and his, his other priest, trying to get the sacrificial fire going, you know. They're striking matches, they're blowing on it, they can't get anything going. And finally... He asks this question, are you the Christ? And suddenly the chief priest jumps up, tears his, his robes in this dramatic gesture and makes an accusation, claims that we need no witnesses. We have heard for ourselves the blasphemy. What do you say? They say, kill him. It happens so unbelievably quickly. Now, let me go back just a little bit. In Leviticus 9, Aaron's sons who are priests, are performing a ritual and the ritual gets out of hand and the two priests die. And Moses is quick, rushes up to Aaron and begins remonstrating with Aaron so that Aaron will behave 
so that this thing doesn't get so out of hand that it becomes a, a, a riot. Clearly, Moses is trying to keep it from becoming a riot. It starts out as a ritual, a sacrificial ritual. It gets overheated. It get, it, it, there's a meltdown. There's a ritual meltdown. Two priests are killed. And suddenly, Moses is trying to keep the thing from getting completely out of control. And Moses runs to Aaron and says, Do not disorder your hair or tear your clothes, or you may incur death yourself. And this retribution may overtake the whole community. This is very powerful stuff. In Leviticus 21, we have the following. The priest who is preeminent over his brothers or on whose head the anointing oil has been poured and who robed in the sacred vestments has received his his investiture will not disorder his hair or tear his clothes. In other words, the, the act of tearing one's clothes is a dramatic, scandalous, inflaming, social, in, uh, it's a social incendiary to do that. And for a priest to do it, a high priest to suddenly stand up and do it, it's like throwing a match on gasoline. And I think it's just, in, again, in terms of the understanding of religious, primitive religious events it's very interesting because the priest is supposed to be in charge of these events he's supposed to orchestrate the sacrificial uh, drama he's supposed to be the choreographer of the sacrificial drama but here you get one in which it's not getting going he can't jump start the sacrificial thing he can't get the accusations lined up he can't get some kind of unanimity so he seizes on Jesus saying, I am the Christ, and, and performs this scandalous one-man ritual. And suddenly the thing is going. So what's happening outside with Peter? The servant girl comes up to him and says, you two were with Jesus of Nazareth, right? You were with him. And... Uh, by the way, in John's Gospel, this servant uh, girl is the keeper of the gate. She's the keeper of the threshold. And I think that's good because what she's doing is she's doing what the keeper of the threshold always does. That is to say, uh, designating the outsider and organizing the social antibodies for the eventual expulsion of the, and the outsider, you know, is the one is the expendable victim. The outsider is the one who doesn't have any, who doesn't have any domestic relatives, and who can therefore be expelled with impunity or victimized. And so the keeper of the, th- the threshold has this job, you see, and she immediately recognizes Peter, and says, "You were with Jesus," and he denied it. But look at how he denies it. He sa- he denies it the same way we do. I was going to say the same way we, we would, but it's really the same way we do. He says, um, I, I, I don't understand you. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I, don't, I don't know what you mean. Literally, he says, I do not know. I do not understand. What are you talking about? And it probably is true in a way. Gerard says it sounds like he's in a dream world. But he said, well, I don't quite get what you mean. So it's not... But see how mild that is? That's how the, that's how the denial begins. It's just a little... Eva- it's almost a euphemism. It's just a ev- little evasive move. It's not, a, it's not a flat denial. It's just a little evasive. And then he went into the forecourt the servant girl saw him and came up to him again now she's talking to the bystanders not to him she says this fellow is one of them and again he denied it so this time he denies it more straightforwardly and then one of the bystanders says to him I know you're one of them because you're a Galilean and here's the irony Jesus was a Galilean his his disciples were Galileans they were they were they were 
provincials, you know, they had a hillbilly accent, like I do. And they were recognizable because of that. And so, here's the thing. Peter has denied that he's a Galilean in a Galilean accent. He's had to deny that he's a Galilean in a Galilean accent. I think a book could be written on that theme in relationship to, to us and to historical Christianity. How we, how we deny being a Galilean in a Galilean accent. I think that's, again, I think that's what the, the controversy over multiculturalism is. You see? We, we, we don't want to hear any more of this Judeo-Christian stuff because we've learned from somewhere or another that um, we ought to be hearing from the marginal ones. Well, who taught us that we ought to be hearing from the marginal ones? The Judeo-Christian stuff. You see, you see what I'm saying? We deny that we're Galileans in a Galilean accent. At that, Peter calls down curses on his own head. I do not know the man, he says. I do not know the man. And Mark, you know, has, has aimed that exactly right. Because it's true. He doesn't. And who's he? He's us. And there's two things that Gerard says about this, this uh, Peter's denial that I think are worth repeating. He says, when all is said and done, Peter's denial is one of the small acts of cowardice that everyone commits and no one remembers. And then, but the more interesting, perhaps, uh, having to do with the power of the Gospels, is Gerard's comment, uh, to this effect. The formidable power of the text is confirmed immediately in that its true significance cannot be ignored without reproducing the structure of the denial itself. In other words, to fail to see the significance of the denial is to, is to perpetuate the denial. So then in Mark 15, we have the following. First thing in the morning, the chief priests together with the elders and scribes, in short, the whole Sanhedrin, so they're all there again, had their plan ready. They had Jesus bound and took him away and handed him over to Pilate. And Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, it is you who say it. So again, he's, that's, a, that's essentially remaining silent. To Pilate's amazement, Jesus made no further reply. And now you get now we get the story of Barabbas, which is in all the accounts. It was festival time. Pilate had the habit of releasing a prisoner to them, and he had one of the prisoners was Barabbas, who was uh, in prison for being a rioter in an uprising. In other words, he's an insurrectionist. And when the crowd went up to ask Pilate for the customary favor, Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Quote, unquote. This person who's been accused of calling himself the king of the Jews. For he realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over. That verse, by the way, is completely gratuitous. It doesn't, it's, it's absolutely out of the blue. He realized that it was out of jealousy that they had handed Jesus over. And I, I think, I think you just, have to see it as the tip of an iceberg in the middle of this story, indicating a kind of marker to indicate that underneath all this is that all of that mimetic stuff that jealousy would be a manifestation of. And it doesn't play any role. It comes to the surface and then it disappears again. But I think it's, it's, it's amazing that it does that. The chief priest, however, had incited the crowd to demand that he should release Barabbas to them instead. And so they demand his release. Now, I've gone over this before, but you know, Barabbas means Barabbas, meaning the son of the father. And Jesus, who in Mark's gospel, up until the very la his very last words, he always calls God father. So uh, Jesus is the son of the father, Barabbas. Bar Abbas, Abba, and Barabbas is son of the father. So you have two sons of the fathers, and Pilate's going to release one of them. And then you have the whole question here 
which is not expressed in the same way in Mark's gospel, but it's the same question that comes out in, in John chapter 8 when Jesus says, your father is the liar, the father of lies, and the murderer from the beginning. You do what your father wants, and I do what my father wants. So you have this contest between fathers, and here you have the contest between a son of the father and a son of the father. Which son do you want of which father? You see, And Barabbas is son of the father in the sense that he's perpetuating the... the 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 insurrection, rebellion, taking up arms as a way of perpetuating in the name of vengeance, in the name of uh, of throwing out the victimizers, victimizing the victimizers. It's a way of perpetuating the whole system. So Jesus, so Pilate is essentially saying, "Do you want same song second verse, or same song you know, the ten thousandth verse?" Or do you want this other son of the father? And, you know, ask people in a crowd, when a, in, a, in, a, in an active, uh, socially volatile crowd, which they would rather have. And it will always be the choice that the gospel indicates. Barabbas, give us Barabbas. That's what we want.